One Week Season. season fam. JM to win here. Welcome to the week three edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host. I am your guest. I am here to hang out with you for the next hour or so. Let's get started. So it's been an interesting week for me. Not that you care about all the details, but I'll run through them real quickly. I, my sister and my brother-in-law, they had a kid, a new baby last week, but then they moved on Monday. So uh, I was helping them with that on Monday. And usually Monday is my day to kind of catch up on work, which meant that Tuesday I was doing that. And then since it's early in the season, there was some spillover into Wednesday. So I got kind of a late start on this week, which has left me with... Uh, under eight hours of sleep over the last two nights. It also left me kind of slow in getting a full sense of this slate. And I was, you know, picking up bits and pieces throughout the week wherever I could, diving into the different games on the slate, the different matchups on the slate, the way that the pricing shook out on the slate. But it kind of all started coming together for me. Let's see, this is Friday afternoon. It's 2 o'clock p.m. on the West Coast right now. It kind of started coming together for me late Thursday night and then more deeply on Friday morning as I was putting together the player grid, putting together the Oracle, and basically sharpening my uh, thoughts for the end of the week, sharpening my thoughts for heading into the Angles podcast and so on and so forth. And it's a really unique week. It's a week that... I like a lot. It's one of my favorite weeks that I can remember, which doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be one of my most profitable weeks, obviously, but just the way that the week sets up is very unique from a, not just from a strategy perspective, but also from from a strategy, not just from a strategy perspective, there's my tiredness, not just from a strategy perspective, but also from a perspective of how I am attacking this slate and some things that are a little, a little bit different than would be normal for me. Primarily, and you'll see this in the player grid, but primarily insofar as the extent to which I am leaning on blocks of players over individual players. Now we know that, I guess, let's take a step back. We know a couple things. We know that we're targeting first place in tournaments. That's very important for us to keep in mind, for us to understand, and for us to understand what that entails. We know that our clearest path to first place in a tournament is huge scores, right? We understand that we're probably not going to get 30 points from every player on our roster, and yet a lot of times we're going to need to average, take out defense, a lot of times we're going to need to average 25 to 30 points from every spot on our roster. So that means that we need players of a couple things. We can't block ourselves by taking a player and saying, well, I think this guy can get me 10 points. And so then as long as he gets his 10 points and then this guy gets his 40 points, I'm in good shape. Sure, that works out when it works out, but you're significantly lowering your chances of a first place finish. So we're looking for opportunities as as best as we can. And it's easier 
earlier in the season when pricing is still a little bit looser. We're looking for opportunities where basically every roster spot or almost every roster spot is a player who can get us 30 points. So obviously the guys that we're paying 4,500 for have a lower probability of hitting 30 points than the guy we're paying 8,500 for. But we want to be in position where across our roster, we have guys who can go for big games. That way, if the guy we're paying up for maybe gets us 22, 24, 25, maybe the guy we're paying 4,500 for gets us 32. And then another guy we're paying up for, instead of getting us the 30 points that we're rostering him for, maybe he gets us those 40 to 42 to 45 points. So again, this is why we try to not take on those players who, those expensive players whose ceiling is kind of capped at like the 30, 32, 33 point range. And we see that a lot. We see heavy ownership on these guys who don't really have a role that can allow them to pop way above their price-based expectations. So sure, 30 points is great, but if that's the ceiling you're giving yourself, you're blocking yourself from paths to that first place finish. So moving forward on all that, the way that we often can best maximize our chances of getting those 30-point scores is by building around teams and game environments that can take off. Because when a team scores 35-plus points or 40-plus points, the opportunities for points to pile up from that team are so much greater. The opportunity for you to take three players from a team and maybe one of them only gets you 16, 17 points, but the other two, say the quarterback and the other wide receiver you took, end up both putting up 35-plus, you end up with this huge chunk of points from, again, just needing to get one thing right, this offense going off. By getting this one thing right, the offense going off, you get three spots on your roster correct. And sure, one of these players, quote, only got you 16 or 17 points. But in terms of the total salary spent and the points that you're getting, you have now secured a ton of points for your roster. Let's say you get 80, 85, 90 points from these three players. And let's say that we're targeting 200 plus points for a first place finish. Well, you've now covered 80, 85, 90 of those 200 plus points from three roster spots, leaving you with six roster spots left to get the rest of those points. So we're always looking for opportunities to build around game environments, but we're also cognizant of the fact that Christian McCaffrey, for example, can put up 30 points in a bad game and 45 to 50 points in a good game. That needs to be factored in independent of whatever game-focused builds you're putting together because that's also huge upside that's just sitting out there for the taking. So what's interesting about this week is a handful of things. One, there aren't a lot of just super clear one-offs with a high floor and a high probability of smashing. Two, there are a number of underpriced offenses that, while they're a little bit riskier, obviously they're underpriced for a reason, or they're lower priced for a reason, while they're a little bit riskier, they have blow-up potential. So putting that together, this becomes an interesting week, or it has become an interesting week for me, in which pretty much everything I'm focused on is focused very specifically around blocks of players and the specific stories that I am telling with those blocks of players. So you'll see this more deeply as we get into the 
player grid, or, or maybe you've already looked at the player grid before listening to the Angles podcast, and you have a, a greater sense of what I mean by this. But we're going to touch on some of this here as we explore the bottom-up build, and as we talk about some of the other viable players on the slate around the guys we're focused on in this bottom-up build. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this slate is the... So, going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, when you have a guy who costs 7500 and his role, sure, gives him a path to 30 points, but rarely gives him a path above that. All things being equal, right? If, if games end on Sunday, and we're going to dive into this a lot more deeply on Tuesday night's Inner Circle segment, because there are some really important points to hit on this based on some recent conversations this last week. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. But if we look at things at the end of the day on Sunday, and the guy who, quote, really doesn't have many paths above 30 points gets you 30 points, and the guy who has 45-point potential only gets 22 points, then sure, the guy who scored the 30 points ended up being the better play in the small sample size of that one slate. But if we look big picture and say, what's the most plus EV way to play? What is the what is going to make us the most money over time? The player who has that 40-plus point potential is going to make you a lot more money than the guy who's kind of capped at 30 points. So we can't be results-based in our thinking, we have to think about what actually maximizes our chances of a first-place finish. So for me, I am typically the guys who are kind of capped at 30 points. We use DeAndre Hopkins as a good example here just because his role in this Cardinals offense doesn't give him many opportunities for huge games. He, as a player, is obviously incredibly capable of posting monster games. And the Cardinals as an offense are incredibly capable of putting up big points as a team. But the way that DeAndre Hopkins is used in this offense lowers his chances of putting up monster scores compared to a guy like Devontae Adams or Tyree Kill being the premier examples. But below those guys, even players like Stefan Diggs, like Calvin Ridley, are going to hit 35 plus points in their offenses more often than DeAndre Hopkins is going to in his offense. So typically that type of player, like I can, I can take my left hand and say DeAndre Hopkins might be the single best wide receiver in the NFL and is one of my favorite players to watch and then take my right hand and say, but I'm almost never going to play him in DFS in this Cardinals offense, especially when he's grabbing 10% ownership. 12% ownership, 15% ownership, 18% ownership, whatever it might be on a given week, because over time, I'm going to make less money going to that type of play than to the type of play who can go off for a monster raw score. I say all that because, A, because it's instructive, but B, because this week is kind of unique. I talked about this in the NFL Edge in my write-up for Kyler Murray, I believe, and then I talk about it again in the player grid, but basically there aren't a lot of players this week who have really clear 40-point upside. And in fact, let's, let's break that down on a more individual basis. Kyler Murray is in a great spot, but if the Jaguars can't keep pace, it's going to be harder for Kyler Murray to just smash his price tag. It's going to be harder for him to go over those 30, 32, 33 points. It's kind of just like what you're rostering him 
hoping to get, it's harder for him to get those 40 points that can be like, oh man, I can't really win this week because I didn't have Kyler Murray. If he gets you 32 points, you're very happy if you rostered him with that on a typical week. But also there's typically going to be a 5K quarterback, a low 6K quarterback who gets close to that same score or maybe even matches that score. And then you could have freed up a lot of salary for more upside elsewhere. So on a normal week, we might say, well, yeah, Kyler will probably get 30, but can he get 40? Well, it's not as likely. So I'll try to take the cheaper quarterback who I think can get me 30 and then use that extra salary on the running back or the wide receiver who I think can get me 40, 45. So that's how we would typically look at that type of situation. Same thing with Lamar Jackson against the Lions. How capable is this Lions team of keeping pace and pushing Lamar Jackson above that 26 to 31, 32 point score up into the stratospheric 38, 40 point score that you would really love to get from him. Let's move over to running back. Dalvin Cook, if he plays, has the bum ankle. Dalvin Cook, if he plays, is going against a Seattle team that is better attacked through the air. Dalvin Cook, if he plays, and if his ankle holds up, will probably have a really strong game. He'll probably get those 24 points, those 26 points, those 29 points, whatever it is. But his chances of going for a true, quote, had-to-have-it game, his chances of going for 35, 40 points are lower than normal. Alvin Kamara, I touch on this in the player grid. Mostly, I say I touch on this in the player grid because in the NFL edge, it's like, boy, this is one of the ugliest games on the slate. Saints at Patriots, Jameis Winston under center, one of the lowest game totals on the slate. Uh, Two good defenses, two coaching staffs that are not going to try to win by just maximizing points across the board. But Alvin Kamara, there's really no linebacker on the Patriots that can cover Kamara. Now, clearly and obviously, he is the weapon that that this Saints offense runs through. And we know that Bill Belichick is going to go out of his way to try to take Kamara out. But that's easier said than done. It's easier said, it's either it's easier done on a wide receiver than it is on a dynamic running back like Alvin Kamara, who's kind of more of a chess piece that can be used in different ways and create mismatches and so on and so forth. So Alvin Kamara could easily pop for a 25 to 30, even a 32, 33 point game. But if we start getting into what's his likelihood of putting up 38 points, 40 points in this spot, well, it's relatively low. Derrick Henry. Uh, Mike Johnson made a great point about this in the Oracle, but Derrick Henry, and and to be clear, there are a lot of positive angles for playing Derrick Henry, but let's touch on this. Derrick Henry had 41 touches last week, and everyone's expecting the Titans to pretty much control this game against the Colts. So is there some risk that his workload isn't the 30-plus touch workload in this spot? We also know that the Colts' run defense is typically one of the best in the league. We also know that Darius Leonard is not a guy you typically want to take running backs against. We also know that Derrick Henry has six games in his career against Darius Leonard's Colts' defense, and he's disappointed to you know hit just a solid enough score five of those six games. And the one time when he popped off was a game where the Colts had a bunch of injured players and several players out due to COVID. We also know that whenever Derrick Henry has a big game, everybody kind of flocks to him the next week. So Derrick Henry, sure, he could get you 26 points, 28 points, 30 points, but his chances of blowing up for a huge game are lower. 
Over at wide receiver, we have Tyreek Hill. We're just hitting on the guys who are 8K or higher. Uh, we have Tyreek Hill, who obviously can blow up for a 40-point game in any matchup and is maybe, all things considered, the player likeliest to actually hit that type of score, just given the fact that Tyreek Hill is such a matchup breaker. And all these other guys we're talking about, you know, they're pretty clear and obvious cases why it's going to be difficult for them to get to that true 40-plus point score. But Brandon Staley's defense is entirely built around forcing opponents to work into the shorter areas of the field and not allowing big plays. So again, what do you think that Brandon Staley is focused on all week? Well, he's going to be thinking if we can use Derwin James to match up one-on-one with Travis Kelsey, it's not going to completely neutralize Kelsey, but maybe we can keep Kelsey from just completely destroying us. And then we can focus extra attention on keeping Tyree kill from having these huge gains and that now for it's kind of like the a really good defensive coach who has a shutdown corner right take Stefan Gilmore with the Patriots take Darrell Rivas with the Patriots or with the Jets that kind of allows the defensive coordinator the defensive coach to use that cornerback in a one-on-one matchup against the opponent's best receiver, effectively neutralizing that best receiver and allowing the defense to then play 10-on-10 football with the opponent's best receiver kind of taken out of the game. And that's why elite cornerbacks are paid at such an elite level, why quarterbacks and defensive ends and cornerbacks is kind of where the money flows first and foremost in the NFL. Because if you have a cornerback who can truly allow you to play 10-on-10 football, then that makes such a huge difference. 10-on-10 football taking away the best weapon on the other team. So that's kind of what I would expect Staley to try to do here is say, look, we know that we're not going to stop Travis Kelsey. We're not going to completely shut him down with just one-on-one coverage. But let's try to throw Derwin James at him all throughout the game and see if that's enough to take Kelsey down a notch from being just, you know, this unstoppable weapon to this guy who, you know, he's open sometimes, but other plays, you know, he's the first read, you got to look to the second read. He's the second read, you got to look to the third read. And then we can say 10 on 10 football, and we can dedicate some extra attention to Tyreek Hill and try to force the Chiefs to win this game somewhere else. So again, you can always make a case for Tyree Kill going for 40 plus points, but his chances of doing so in this spot are going to be lower. And same thing with Travis Kelsey. We go over to the 8K players at tight end. Chances of Travis Kelsey doing that in this spot are going to be lower. Put it all together, it wouldn't be entirely shocking if we don't have any player on this slate go for over 35 or 36 points. So that turns our attention more toward just raw points. So somebody like, I touched on this in the player grid, but somebody like Austin Eckler, who typically, because I would peg his his high-end game, his reasonable high-end game in this spot at around 38, at around 28 to 30 points, that's not typically a player that I would go to at first because you're paying 7K for 4X's salary. And I'd say, you know, sure, that's great if you get it, if you get, if he hits his high end, if you get those 30 points, but you're probably spending that salary. And uh, one of the best things I ever heard about DFS, and I've, I've repeated this before, but Head Chopper at Rotor Grinders, I remember him once saying, it was like maybe 2015, but he said, think about 
every player you put on your roster, not just in terms of what they add to your roster, but also what they take away from your roster. So if you're spending 7K on a player who you say, oh, I hope he gets me to 30 points, well, you're taking away that salary flexibility to pay for somebody else who might be able to get you to 40. But now that we've gone through all these players and seen that there's really not a a super clear path to any individual player getting over 35 points, we can now get more comfortable with saying, hey, look, maybe I'm overpaying for Kyler Murray compared to what I would normally look for. Maybe I'm overpaying for Austin Eckler compared to what I would normally look for. But I also recognize that there is opportunity on this slate for just those raw points to be so much more valuable than anything else. Add to that the fact that we have kind of these cheaper stacks that are very viable, and it becomes a really unique and interesting slate where I don't typically just heavily stack cheaper offenses. A lot of times I'll have one or two cheaper offensive stacks. Uh, You may recall a couple Sam Darnold stacks last year. Maybe it was back-to-back weeks for me and like three or four weeks in a row for Hilo. But generally speaking, that's not my main focus on a slate. And typically, if I can identify that a higher priced player has a pretty low probability of just smashing his price considered expectations, I'm going to be looking to spend that salary better in another spot on a player who has that potential. And if I spend it on a player who has that potential and that player doesn't hit that range, if that player ends up going for 15, 20 points, and the player I could have gotten goes for 25 to 30, I don't care because I know that over time, taking that guy who can go for 40 plus is going to make me a lot more money. It's going to get get me a lot more first place finishes. So this week, just because of the nature of the way this slate sets up, I'm kind of being moved toward different roster construction approaches than I would typically move toward. And I really like the way that the pieces are coming together for me as well. Speaking of this week being a little bit crazy, those of you who've uh, been with me for a long time, you may recall that my wife, Abby, is a photographer. Since we've had kids, she has taken on very little photography work, but she took on a an elopement that she's going to be shooting on Saturday uh, at the coast in Oregon, which is like an hour and a half away. So she will be leaving at 2 p.m. on Saturday, not returning till 10, which means I have both kids until 10 p.m. on Saturday. So I'm glad that this slate is coming together the way it's coming together for me, where I have all these blocks and I can just kind of see, hey, how did these piece together? Because uh, usually Saturday afternoon is kind of a relaxing and uh, roster building focused time for me. And that will not be the case this week. But with that, let's dive into the bottom-up build. Actually, before we dive into the bottom-up build, I do want to mention one thing really quickly that I was thinking about a couple days ago. One of the things we... Well, a couple things. Uh, You may have noticed, you probably have noticed, that we have... Our focus is on primarily on NFL DFS. And, you know, we branched into, hey, how can we connect you guys with really great quality content and tools and whatnot for other DFS sports as well, because so much of what we talk about for NFL DFS from a strategy and how to win in DFS perspective applies to other sports as well. But another thing that we've realized is that the the true driving force behind DFS is sure it's fun and sure we want to make money But even deeper than that, it's this desire to be able to make money doing something that's not a standard 
job, something that's not going to work every day and it directly exchanging our, our hours for money. And so because of that, we have the Amazon third-party seller course in the marketplace. Hilo has his swing trading top shot, uh, his top shot and swing trading crypto course in marketplace and the crypto swing trading channel in Discord. But even beyond that, we talk about just a lot of foundational roots level stuff that can help you start finding your pathways toward that type of freedom of schedule, freedom of movement, so on and so forth. So one of the things that I want to highlight for you, and I've I've mentioned this before, but a lot of the sharpest people I know are very focused on picking up small edges and small amounts of money wherever it pops up. So last week, I think it was last Sunday, Zandamir was texting me uh, like an hour and a half before kickoff letting me know about all the overlay in Yahoo tournaments. So not only are those tournaments softer, but there's overlay in them. Uh, Mike Johnson, you guys remember a couple years ago before Fantasy Draft went under uh, and we were hammering Fantasy Draft saying like, hey, there's an edge on Fantasy Draft. Uh, Mike Johnson made a bunch of his initial DFS money on Fantasy Draft, which kind of allowed him to take bigger swings on DraftKings and on other sites with that bankroll that he built up on Fantasy Draft. Uh, I can't tell you how, I mean, Cubs fan has millions of dollars and I can't tell you how often he'll hit me up about something where it's like, hey, go here, you can get 25 bucks, do this, you can get 50 bucks. And I think that there's this mindset of like, I'm going to focus on the DraftKings main slate, I am going to beat this really difficult game. And there is a lot of joy in in conquering the DraftKings main slate. And I think that it's one of the best ways to sharpen your DFS play. But also, look for other ways to just scoop up little bits of money. Look for other ways to take advantage of, of what's out there. So whether that's playing on dedicating extra time and attention and focus to playing on Yahoo or uh, Lex is writing up the underdog battle Royale article in the reflection scroll at the beginning of the week, each week, or we have in, in marketplace, we have at the top of marketplace, we have the make marketplace free banner. If you go there, you, if you live in a state with legal sports betting, you can sign up for three sports books Get deposit bonuses, which is literally free money on all three sports books, and get 100 edge points every time you do that, which is enough to pay for basically two years of inner circle or to buy like four or five marketplace courses. Speaking of Cubs fan, I mean, I think Cubs fan has an account with literally every sports book in his state, just because of the ability to take advantage of those deposit bonuses. So shifting your mindset to where you're focused, not just on the big things, but also what are the little things that I can, what are the little advantages I can find? What are the little life hacks that will allow me to scoop up? Hey, here's some money here. Here's some money there. I'll add this to my bankroll. I'll add this to my bankroll. What that mindset also does is it sharpens your DFS play 
Because instead of your DFS play just being, hey, here's this money that's here, you've now started focusing on, oh, I picked up 10 bucks here. I picked up 75 bucks here. I picked up 25 bucks there. I picked up 100 bucks here. And if you're putting that back into your bankroll, whether that's for prop betting, whether that's for DFS play, whatever that bankroll covers, you've now focused on picking up these small amounts of money. And so you're no longer, it, it, it takes you away from the mindset where sometimes it's easy in DFS to be like, well, I got to be willing to lose, you know, so I'll just throw this roster in. And you can kind of get in that lazy mindset of just putting rosters into play and without really realizing it, just doing it for the entertainment value. But if you are adding to your bankroll in these smaller focused increments where you're going out of your way to pick up 10 bucks here, 100 bucks there, 50 bucks there, then when you're going into your DFS play, sure, you still need that willing to lose mindset, but it also forces you to say, okay, let me buckle down and, and like I picked up this money to add to my bankroll. I don't want to just throw it away. Let me make sure that I'm actually playing sharp. Let me make sure that I'm focused. Let me make sure that I'm playing in such a way that maximizes my potential to bring in more money over time. And again, that includes, and not just getting off of DraftKings, right? But that includes the in-game drafts. That includes the, I wish, uh, let me, let me, hold on one sec. <laughs> okay, sorry for the awkwardness of that transition. I paused the recording to go look this up. Go to the One Week Season podcast feed. Go to September 8th and go to the episode titled Week One Discord Community Chat with JM to win. I break down the strategy angles on those in-game drafts. So again, that's the one week season podcast feed that is September 8th and it's titled week one discord community chat with JM to win. Those in-game drafts are a such an, there's such an edge in them and B they're an incredible way to in real time and very quickly and sort of rapid fire practice a lot of the elements we talk about about what it takes to get to first place and sometimes taking on the lesser play because the lesser play is far more likely to hit than the ownership is giving it credit for. Uh, you get to practice correlation. You get to practice so much stuff in those little in-game drafts. Playing the short slates, playing the single-game slates on FanDuel instead of just playing the showdowns on DraftKings, branching out into the FanDuel ones as well, which are much softer. So finding all these little ways that you can continue to add to your bankroll, that you can continue to add to your ammunition that will allow you to better attack these big first place finishes that can kind of be big difference makers for you moving forward. So with that, let's roll back over to this week and to the bottom up build. So I mentioned that the some of these cheaper stacks were going to be in the mix for me this week. And in fact, I think I'll have five of my rosters this week built around cheaper stacks. Obviously, I don't know for certain that that's the exact number, but somewhere around five out of my eight rosters are going to be built around these cheaper passing stacks. With that in mind, this bottom-up build was interesting because, well, a couple things. So one, typically in the player grid, we have the correlated bottom-up build where we hit on strategy angles and all that. And then we have the straight value bottom-up build where we say, hey, look, just to give you a sense of who some of the best values are in the slate, here are some of the best values on the slate. 
This week, because of how correlated these cheaper passing attacks are and how sharp it can be to build around them, we don't even have a straight value bottom-up build this week because it would be doing you a disservice. If you're paying down to save salary in a spot, this week in particular, you want to think about how you can correlate that, how you can build around it so that it's not just a one-off cheap piece, but it's a one-off it's a, it's a cheap piece that's part of like a greater story you're telling that will allow you to capture more upside on that build at once. So with that as the backdrop, there are different ways we could have gone with this bottom-up build. So I'm going to hit on the ways that we went, but also touch on the ways that we could have gone. So ways we could have gone, we'll start there. There are a lot of quarterbacks under 6K who are viable to consider this week. Derek Carr is viable to consider this week. Derek Carr, you know, it's easy to say, well, the Miami defense is good. Yeah, so is the Ravens defense and so is the Steelers defense. And Derek Carr has been lights out so far against those defenses. So Derek Carr at home in a tough environment for the Dolphins with Josh Jacobs. I I believe he's definitely out at this point, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's likely out still at this point. But with Josh Jacobs likely out, it sets up well for a Derek Carr game. Now, I'm playing eight rosters this week. Uh, Derek Carr's not in the player grid. Derek Carr will not be on any of my eight rosters, but he was in deep consideration for me. And if I were playing mass multi-entry or even mini multi-entry, he would be somebody I would keep considering, keep moving toward. Teddy Bridgewater in a great spot against the Jets. After what Bridgewater did to the Jaguars last week, Bridgewater has, you know, we laid out the numbers in the NFL edge right up, but I think he was like, he's like fifth in average intended air yards so far this year. He's sixth in passer rating. He's second in completion percentage. And so the greater argument of, well, sure, but Bridgewater hasn't played anybody. He's had soft matchups so far. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about that next week. But right now he gets to play the Jets at home. Another good spot for Bridgewater. Bridgewater is a guy who can be considered this week. And he has, same with Derek Carr, Bridgewater has cheap wideouts who you can pair him with. The next three guys are all included in the player grid. They will all be on builds of mine this week, or at least at this point in the week, I expect them all to be on builds of mine this week. That is Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Matt Ryan. We will leave those three guys alone until you read about them in the player grid because I don't want to take up too much of your time here and there's no need to double dip on all this information. But we ended with Matt Ryan for a reason because the other quarterback here, and and there are more quarterbacks, right? Like Jared Goff is actually somewhat viable. You could even make a case for Joe Burrow here. Uh, We know how good the Steelers defense is, but also Burrow has really good weapons. But if we're kind of ranking these plays down here and then also looking at the fact that Matthew Stafford's, I I believe, 6,300. Ryan Tannehill is in that price range as well. Like, do you really want to pay 5,200 for Jared Goff when you could pay 6,300 for Matthew Stafford? You can make that space for that extra 1,100 in salary and probably pick up quite a few more points 
if, at least if we played out this slate a hundred times, Matthew Stafford would outscore Goff more often than, than not. And more importantly, if we're trying to get first place in tournaments, Matthew Stafford's ceiling games would be much higher than Jared Goff's ceiling games. So, you know, we want to be careful about how deep into this pool we get. And really the guys that I highlighted is as far as I would be going, unless I were just doing mass multi-entry. Now, a quick note for the handful of you who might do true mass multi-entry, 150 plus lineups, the strategy that... Sonic takes of building at least one roster around, I believe it's around every team, maybe it's around every game, but I believe Sonic builds at least one roster around every team. You guys might remember a couple years ago when I was on the mini multi-entry stretch of play that I was doing that just for purpose for for build purposes throughout the week right to get a sense of what is available on the slate, what could I be doing here? I would build at least one roster around every, around every team. Now I was putting 14 to 19 rosters into play. So a lot of these rosters were ones that I didn't plan to use, but it was just trying to get a sense of what was available on every team. Pushing into larger field tournaments saying, hey, what might end up winning this slate that I might not be considering? Let me force myself to think about that. So if you're playing mass multi-entry, there's a case to be made for saying, look, I'm going to build at least one roster around every team. And even if you're doing mini multi-entry, there's a case to be made for saying, I'm not going to put one roster from every team in play, but I am going to build a roster around every team just to get a sense of what's out there and what I I might be missing by just focusing on my preconceived notions here and what I'm already thinking. When people ask, I, I get stuck in a roster construction rut where I kind of keep coming back to the same plays. What's a good way to break out of that? That's a good way to break out of that. Go build some rosters around games and teams that you don't plan to use that week. Just to force you to see different ways that you can build, you start your roster with team X playing against team Y and you have four players from that game. And now you have a totally different salary structure for the rest of, for the other five spots in your roster. And that forces you to think, okay, how would I build this roster? Which might open you up to some plays you might not be seeing. So just a little side trail there for uh, you mass multi-entry and even mini multi-entry players uh, about the, the value of building around each team, each game, and so on and so forth. But if you're building tighter builds, then we don't want to get too deep into these plays that are suboptimal below uh, the 6K price range. So we want to kind of keep things tight. The, The quarterbacks I mentioned are the quarterbacks that I would be most interested in. That is Carr. Bridgewater, uh, neither of whom will be on my rosters this week, but both of whom I like. Carr, Bridgewater, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, Matt Ryan, and let's start the bottom-up build. The quarterback opposite Matt Ryan, Daniel Jones. So we could have started our bottom-up build with any of these quarterbacks. And if we'd gone with Derek Carr, we could say, hey, Derek Carr and Henry Ruggs is cheap. And I I wrote down this note on Henry Ruggs. I I don't expect to have Henry Ruggs this week, but I wrote down this note on Henry Ruggs for myself. I wrote, where might projections and pricing be wrong? Right? When when we're early in the season and a a player has gotten better in the offseason, that's one of the things that we can't really see 
from our perspective is some players get better in the offseason every year. Some players get worse in the offseason every year because they're not putting in that time to get better. And some players kind of just do the same thing every offseason and stay pretty static year to year or they're deeper into their career and they stay pretty static year to year. But Henry Ruggs is a young player. His role appears to have grown in this offense. And there's a chance that Henry Ruggs will prove to have been massively underpriced weeks one, two, three, four, whatever, by the time we get to week seven, eight, nine, like maybe he's a $6,500 wide receiver and we just don't know that yet. So Henry Ruggs is very interesting in large field play. He's the kind of guy who can score from anywhere on the field, which we always like in large field play. But we could have started our bottom-up build with Carr and Ruggs. We could have started our bottom-up build with Bridgewater plus Sutton plus Hamler or plus Sutton plus Tim Patrick. We could have started our bottom-up build with Trevor Lawrence, LaVisca Chenault, and Marvin Jones. We will actually get to those pass catchers here in just a moment. We could have started our bottom-up build with Justin Fields and with Mooney. We wouldn't want to pair, or I wouldn't want to pair Fields with two pass catchers because we're really rostering Fields, hoping that he gets a bunch of points with his legs, which takes away the chances of Fields plus two pass catchers being in a tournament winning lineup, but fields plus one pass catcher could very much be in a tournament winning lineup. We could have started our bottom up build with Matt Ryan plus Kyle Pitts, but we are starting our bottom up build with Daniel Jones. And with Daniel Jones, there are a few different ways we could go, all of which will be relatively low owned. Uh, We could go with Darius Slayton. We could go with Sterling Shepard. We could go with Kenny Galladay. I dig into this more deeply in the player grid, and there are very specific stories that different pairings from this game tell. So I'll leave that to the player grid. But in this bottom-up build, what we're going to do is say, Daniel Jones, obviously we're rostering him, hoping that he gets a bunch of points with his legs, so we want one pass catcher with him. And we're going to build for a scenario in which the... Falcons are also putting up points, and the Giants are having to be aggressive. It's it's kind of a back-and-forth affair, and so we're going to say Daniel Jones plus Darius Slayton. Now, we could say Daniel Jones plus Kenny Galladay. Technically, we could say Daniel Jones plus Sterling Shepard, although uh, I'm less likely to put Sterling Shepard with Daniel Jones because Daniel Jones' blow-up is likely to come in a game where he's having to be aggressive. Therefore, uh, Daniel Jones plus Darius Slayton is the way that I would want to go on this particular build. So Daniel Jones plus Darius Slayton. And that brings us over to tight end where there are three guys I really like this week. Those three guys are probably no surprise. It's Tyler Higby, it's TJ Hawkinson, and it's Kyle Pitts. But because we're putting Daniel Jones and Darius Slayton on this roster, and because we're wanting to think about how do we actually go about winning a tournament? We are going to put Kyle Pitts on this roster as well. And now we have a setup where we're betting on a game environment in which it's back and forth, in which Kyle Pitts is getting volume, in which Darius Slayton's getting some downfield looks, in which Daniel Jones is taking off to run a few times, maybe getting a touchdown on the ground, and hopefully just capturing all these points at once. We get one thing right, this game taking off. And by getting that one thing right, we get three spots on this roster correct. Now, here's where things get really fun. 
I toyed around with now when I was building the initial bottom up build, I expected I hadn't really looked at ownership yet. And obviously this was on Thursday. So Thursday ownership projections, you know, you don't want to take that as gospel because a lot's going to change between Thursday and the end of the week. But I was looking at Daniel Jones and thinking, man, that's a relatively sharp play. And nobody ever wants to play Daniel Jones. I bet we can get him at really cheap, at really low ownership. I was also thinking DFS, the DFS community loves a college superstar quarterback with rushing upside. And they're usually so hot for playing that guy in his first game. The risks be damned. Everybody jumps on a guy like Justin Fields. So I posted a poll on Twitter asking who was going to score more points this week, Daniel Jones or Justin Fields. And I expected Daniel Jones to get 20% of the votes and Justin Fields to get 80%. And this is kind of a snapshot into what the industry chatter must be because industry chatter typically shapes public perception on a larger scale. And the answers came in overwhelmingly toward Daniel Jones. As I started seeing that, I checked ownership projections and saw that Daniel Jones didn't appear to be a sneaky play this week on, on anybody's ownership projections. So we don't necessarily get that that sneaky side with Daniel Jones. Um, but But by pairing him correctly in a roster that actually bets on not just, hey, Daniel Jones might have a big game, it's against the Falcons, but that actually bets on the game environment that would produce that big game obviously still gives us uh, an enormous edge if that game environment develops, if Daniel Jones does end up going for that big game. But before I realized that Daniel Jones was going to be popular, I was kind of back and forth between Daniel Jones and Trevor Lawrence on this bottom-up build. And I settled on Daniel Jones because he has the he has fewer question marks and he has the softer matchup. Not that the Cardinals secondary is particularly scary to us, but we know about the Cardinals pass rush and we know how bad the Falcons defense is. We also have two games from Trevor Lawrence, neither of which he's done well in and a head coach for Trevor Lawrence who appears to be in a little bit over his head at the moment that could change, but there are more question marks on Trevor Lawrence than there are on Daniel Jones. But I really like this Trevor Lawrence stack. And I really like this Trevor Lawrence game environment. So what I went ahead and did now, this is interesting because typically if you take two pass catchers from a team, you're going to take the quarterback with those pass catchers, because you're basically saying these two pass catchers, both guys are going to post tournament winning scores. And if both guys don't, then one of them is just going to absolutely take off. And then the other one, you know, so like maybe one of them gets 35, 36 points and the other one gets 13, 14 points, but they still combine for those 50 points that you would love at the price tag that Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault combined for. Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault have combined for 37 targets through two games. We know that the Jags are going to be passing here. What's interesting is you can actually make a case because of Daniel Jones rushing upside and because he's priced pretty much right next to Trevor Lawrence, you could actually make a case that Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault is one of the best two wide receiver pairings to play on this slate and that you could play them on a roster like this with Daniel Jones at quarterback, basically saying, look, it, they're almost the same price, Jones and, and Lawrence. So if Daniel J Jones outscores Trevor Lawrence, 
with some rushing upside, I'm actually coming out ahead. So Trevor Lawrence could throw for 300 yards and three touchdowns and put up a 27-point DraftKings game, but Daniel Jones could take off running for 60 yards against the Atlanta defense, running a touchdown, throw for two more. He could put up 33 points and outscore Trevor Lawrence. Uh, and it still works because you've got these two pass catchers picking up all the points from Trevor Lawrence and you're getting a better quarterback score. So it creates a very unique roster construction and it's one that's totally viable in this type of setup. So we have Daniel Jones, Darius Slayton, Kyle Pitts at tight end. We have added in Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault. Again, there are a lot of other ways we could have played this. We touched on all these other kind of underpriced wide receivers, underpriced uh, passing attacks, underpriced stacks, and we could have pulled in different pieces and made different cases for those ones. So I want you to understand that those pieces are also kind of floating out there. Those ones are, most of those are in my player grid. They're going to be in my build. And again, just that kind of car and Bridgewater ones are the ones that aren't. I'll probably have some Cortland Sutton exposure as well to get some of that, that Bridgewater love going. Uh, so really Henry Ruggs and Carr are the only ones totally getting cut out of what I will be doing this week. Uh, So now on this roster, we have Daniel Jones, at quarterback. We have Darius Slayton, a wide receiver. We have Kyle Pitts at tight end, all from the same game. We have Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault at wide receiver. And we're going to close out wide receiver in the flex with Rondell Moore. We could also go Christian Kirk. But again, we're saying that the Jaguars are doing a good job. The Jaguars are not just getting blown out. We're hoping that they put up three touchdowns and they all come through the air or four touchdowns and they all come through the air and that these two wide receivers are benefiting. That means that the chances of the Cardinals having to keep passing deeper into this game are elevated. And that means then that Rondell Moore or Christian Kirk have an elevated potential of hitting a big game in this spot. So, Because we're putting two Jaguars wide receivers on this roster because of what that move says we're expecting to happen in that game, we also want to bring back a Cardinals piece on that same roster. So understand all of this works inside out. And what I mean by that is we get a lot of, you know, when people ask questions about DFS and whatnot, there are a lot of questions about should you always bring back somebody from the other side of a stack? Should you always do this? Should you always do that? And it's kind of like looking outside in at a situation and saying, oh, well, here are the rules. Let's impose them on this spot and this spot and this spot. But what we want to do is look inside out from a game. We want to actually say, hey, what are we saying by putting this player on a roster? And as we always say, Just because you're putting a player on one roster doesn't mean that you necessarily think that player is going to have a huge game. But once he goes on that roster, you are saying on that particular roster that you expect that player to have a big game. So you could put Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault on one roster out of 50. And on 49 rosters, you're saying that the Jaguars kind of get stomped here. But on one roster... You're saying Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault both have a big game. So once you start telling that story on that one roster, you want to finish telling that story by saying, how do both of these guys have a big game? This is where we move away from just picking players. We move away from just taking guys who project well and we say, yes, but... In what game environment do they put up this score? What story do, What story can we develop around putting this player on this roster that actually makes sense to where we can say, okay, well, if these guys are having a big game, that significantly increases the chances of this guy having a big game as well. Let's get him on the roster too. So 
we have our quarterback spot covered. We have four wide receivers. We have our tight end. That brings us over to running back. Running back is really, really interesting this week because there just are there are so many timeshare running backs in play this week. And, and we can run through the list real quickly. Uh, but Jonathan Taylor, you know, he's going to play like 65% of the snaps. Derrick Henry's going to play 70%. Those aren't timeshares, right? Those are lead backs. Uh, Falcons, it's been a 60-40 split between Mike Davis and Cordero Patterson, and reports are that's going to keep up. Uh, Giants, we have Saquon. He played 84% of the snaps last week. Uh, Chargers, Austin Eckler's not going to play a full complement of snaps, but he's kind of the workhorse. Chiefs, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is going to play most of the snaps. Obviously, he's not a focal point on this offense. Bengals, Joe Mixon's going to play most of the snaps. Steelers, Najee Harris is going to play all the snaps. Bears, David Montgomery is going to be a basically a two-down back. And Damian Williams is going to come in from there. Browns, Nick Chubb is going to be the main guy, but he and Kareem Hunt are going to split work. Ravens, we start getting into more of these splits now. Ravens, Tyson Williams is going to get, you know, a little over 50% of the touches, but he's going to be sharing that workload with other guys. Lions, DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams are going to be like a 60-40 split. The Saints, we have Kamara. The Patriots, we have Damian Harris, but we know that that's just a two-down situation. The Cardinals, we have a pretty even split, you know, a 1A, 1B split between Chase Edmonds and James Conner. The Jaguars, we have a 1A, 1B split. Washington, we have a two-down back still in Antonio Gibson. He's getting a little bit of third-down work, but J.D. McKissick is still really the third-down guy, the hurry-up guy. The Bills, we have Singletary and Moss splitting work. The Jets, we have three guys splitting work. The Broncos, we have two guys splitting work right down the middle. The Dolphins, we have three guys splitting work. The Raiders, we had Kenyon Drake on the field for 70% of the snaps, but we also had Peyton Barber taking 13 meaningless carries. Uh, the Seahawks, we have Chris Carson is is more of a workhorse back. He's getting all the touches, but they have not really elevated his usage. And we haven't seen him go over 20 carries since 2019. And since that hip injury, they've really limited his touches. Uh, Vikings, obviously, we have a, a full workload situation. The Bucks, another one where the work is just split a bunch of different ways. And the Rams, uh, we're going to have Sony Michelle probably playing this week with Daryl Henderson likely out. Sony Michelle on early downs and Funk on third downs. So then if we back up and run back through this with the guys who have those 65 plus percent roles, well, Jonathan Taylor is an underdog against the Titans, potentially with Carson Wentz out. Uh, Derrick Henry is going against a tough run defense. Clyde Edwards Hilaire has, I believe it's four touchdowns in his career, right? Like they're not, they're not focusing on him close to the goal line. Joe Mixon has a tough matchup against the Steelers. Najee Harris is in this currently really bad offense and going against a Bengals defense that has been playing well. Uh, David Montgomery is a big road underdog against the Browns. Nick Chubb is priced up much higher than he should be for a guy with his touch ceiling. Uh, DeAndre Swift is going against the Ravens. Alvin Kamara and Damian Harris both have a tough matchup against each other, Saints and Patriots. So you see how as we run through this list, there just aren't a lot of guys with huge touch ceilings. And the guys who kind of have that like, hey, look, they'll probably get more than 16 touches. Most of them are not in great spots this week. So this week, 
running back is really pretty iffy kind of across the board. So for the bottom-up build, I am putting in, I'm starting out with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who out of all these 13 to 16 touchbacks, he's the cheapest and he's on a team with one of the highest Vegas implied team totals on the slate. Oh, he's on a team that is almost never going to fail. And he's also on a team, as we talked about at the top, where there is potential for Kelsey and Hill to both get not, not shut down, but neutralized to an extent, which if we say, well, the Chiefs will probably still score 28 plus points and neither Kelsey nor Hill will post a monster game, that increases the chances of those points coming from somewhere else. I legitimately don't know if I'll have any Clyde Edwards-Hilaire this week. The case against him is obviously strong, but I want to illustrate that you can make a strong case for him as well. And at only 4,800, it, like there's been talk all week about, you know, well, Saquon's underpriced, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is underpriced, everybody's going to flock to them. But it kind of seems like the fear on both of these players is keeping either of them from getting super hefty ownership traction. So if that ends up being the case, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is an interesting guy to keep in mind this week. Just from a standpoint of saying, look, here's some cheap exposure to this powerful Chiefs offense, and there are clear paths to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire having a big game. Not exciting, but no running back is really super exciting to me this week. So I am putting Clyde Edwards-Hilaire on this build. And then the last piece outside of defense is going to be Chris Carson. And again, it's a similar situation where we're saying, look, here's one of the highest total teams. This guy is going to be getting touches. Uh, unlike Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Chris Carson can get touches close to the goal line. He can, you know, have a two touchdown game. We saw it last week. So Chris Carson, not the most exciting way to close out the players on this otherwise really fun bottom up build, but Chris Carson and Clyde Edwards Hilaire at running back. And that allows me, so I was playing around with the Bengals at defense against the Steelers. I was playing around with the Titans against the Colts, assuming that Jacob Eason is under center, but you know, it's easy to see, especially the uh, especially the Titans, because they're just not good. But it's easy It's easy to see the Titans and Bengals, neither of them scoring more than five, six, seven points and grabbing 18 to 20% of ownership between them. So what I wanted to do on this bottom-up build was look for a defense that would kind of, again, we're pretending like everybody's working with, in this case, a 44K salary cap. And if everybody were working with a 44K salary cap, how could we differentiate a little bit and do something that other people wouldn't be doing? Well, most people would be looking to pay down at tight end to free up space elsewhere. So I would be looking to pay up a little, sorry, not tight end, defense. Again, there's that tiredness. Uh, I would be looking to pay down at, uh, pay up at defense a little bit um, and do something a little bit different than the field would be doing. So I put the Browns defense on this roster. Browns in this spot, I am not betting on Justin Fields having a massive game. I am betting on Daniel Jones having a big game. I'm betting on Trevor Lawrence having a big game. So in this scenario, and especially if we were all working with a 42, uh, 44K salary cap, I would assume that Justin Fields' ownership would be a little bit higher than it appears it's going to be on the main slate. So I would want to say, okay, I'm taking these two cheaper quarterbacks or betting on these two cheaper quarterbacks, you know, saying, I'm taking two of Lawrence's wide receivers. I'm taking Daniel Jones. So let me also bet on, let me gain an edge on the Justin Fields rosters by betting that Fields fails, by betting that Fields has a couple turnovers, by betting that Fields takes some sacks, by betting that the Browns defense has a big game 
in this spot. So Browns defense, that gives us a full roster of Daniel Jones at quarterback paired with Darius Slayton, paired with Kyle Pitts, wrapping up wide receiver with LaVisca Chenault, Marvin Jones, and Rondell Moore, wrapping up a running back with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and Chris Carson, and wrapping up this team with the Browns defense. That does it for this week's bottom-up build. That does it for this week's Angles Pod. As always, thanks so much for hanging out. I am excited about this week's player grid. I'm excited about this week's Oracle. Uh, I have not yet read the other articles that have come in, but I'm sure those are going to be great as well. So I'm excited about this week's scroll. Uh, I will see you guys on the site throughout the day on Saturday. I will see you in your inbox on Sunday morning, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday evening. 